Recently, I saw this YouTube video about girls in rock bands and how oftentimes they are asked, what's it like to be a girl in a band? And it was talking about how rock and roll started as like a man's world and women were the fodder or subject matter of said rock songs. Mm-hmm. And one of the first bands they talked about in this video was Fanny. Oh, nice. As they should. (laughs) Yeah. One of, or actually the first all-female rock band signed to a major label. Yeah, that's super cool. Which we learned and talked about in one of our many discussions on the subject matter of forgotten girl groups. Yeah. Was this a recent video? I don't think it, I don't know when it was made. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was very recent. No. I'd be curious to see that and see who else they talk about. Yeah, they talked about a lot of women in in rock. But yeah, The Runaways, Tina Weymouth, as Mm -hmm. you know, she's the bassist of Talking Heads. Oh, hi. How are you? I'm Tara. I'm Natalie. Take a look around. We'll be over here talking about some really cool girl groups. Yeah, but I was thinking it's been a minute since we've talked about forgotten girl groups in the store. Yeah, and there's plenty of them, you know, that deserve to be remembered and praised, you know. I'd be up for another round of that. Let's do it. Who do you have in mind? Well, you know, last time I talked about the Blossoms with the beautiful Darlene Love, and that was more in the 60s realm. I decided this time to dive a little bit into the 80s, early 80s, with a band called Marine Girls. Cool. So, So let me set the scene though on Marine Girls because there were some changes afoot in the music industry around when they popped up. British punk music began mid-70s. Sex Pistols are often credited as being the first British punk band and punk music became a way for British youth to express themselves and their anger and push back against the establishment. And then it was like the do-it-yourself or DIY attitude from New York combined with the anger of the unemployed British youth and it created essentially this British punk wave, I guess. So bands like The Clash, X-Ray Specs were kind of singing on socio-cultural ideas and then you had like Susie and the Banshees and Wire and the Slits and then across the later 70s, 1977, 78, evolved more towards post-punk sounds with bands like Joy Division from Manchester and then again, parallel to punk, you had this industrial culture with bands like Throbbing Gristle or Cabaret Voltaire. So we're inching into the 80s here and pop was reimagined and punk was splintering into all these different subgenres. You had skinheads and anarchy type punks like Crass and then Adam and the Ants and Susie and the Banshees were more goth and then you had these independent music labels, record labels like Fast or Factory Records, Postcard Records, 4AD. They were cult cultivating their own aesthetic and pushing this new indie world of pop and DIY music. This new indie world pop was inspired heavily by the 60s and were kind of, I guess, pushing their way, pushing against this whole like Thatcherite 80s doom, I guess, if you want to call it that. Like I said, these indie labels were popping up all over the UK, Postcard Records, Creation Records, Wham. They were creating a huge mark on indie pop with shoegaze, girl garage punk and other 80s subgenres that still inspire indie music as we know it today. But before Riot Girls took back punk from the boys, the 80s post-punk wave brought us bands such as the Pastels and Tallulah Gosh and Dolly Mixture and Marine Girls as part of a new 80s 
wave featuring predominantly female vocalists. Mm. Their sound was a lot less abrasive, often featuring charming, amateur-sounding vocals with jangly guitars and sometimes upbeat percussion. But here's where we really begin this journey of getting to know this somewhat forgotten girl band that I have chosen for today, and that is Marine Girls. Marine Girls is a quartet formed in 1980 by two friends from the sixth form, which I had to Google. That's like the 12th grade here in the States. Tracy Thorne and Gina Hartman. Originally, Tracy Thorne just played guitar and Gina Hartman was the lead vocalist and percussionist. Tracy overcame her shyness and she also started singing too by the time they started making records. They were later joined by Jane Fox on bass and her younger sister Alice on vocals and percussion. They're often referred to as one of the pioneers of twee music despite being classified as post-punk by most people in the 80s, early 80s. But just a quick note here too, before Marine Girls, Tracy Thorne actually started her musical career in the post-punk world with a group called Stern Bops, playing guitar and doing some backup vocals. But back to Marine Girls, representative of this like DIY culture of the time, Marine Girls self-produced and self-released a cassette in 1980 called A Day by the Sea. This features mostly unavailable songs such as Getting Away From It All, Lorna, Hour of Need, and Harbors. Let's hear a clip of Night Daydreams from A Day by the Sea. It's so like bubbly and mellow and happy a lot more yeah. than I, I would have expected. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I mean, this is, again, they self-recorded this, these, you know, young teenage girls, they met in 12th grade, essentially, you know, so it's it's really cool that That's they did badass. this. That's pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. But A Day by the Sea was recorded mainly at Jane's house in her front room after school on a reel-to-reel tape recorder. Gina says, it was so DIY. No wonder it sounds like it was actually recorded underwater. We had fun doing that. I remember it involved a lot of eating boil in the bag, cod and butter sauce and raw flapjack mixture. Jane's and Alice's house was good to record at because they lived with their dad and he wasn't in that much after school and we could walk to her house easily. So it was just 10 songs recorded in December of 1980 with another two songs added later to complete 12 songs on this cassette. But yeah, you can hear the 60s influence and how it almost perfectly encapsulates this feeling of being a teenage girl. They were authentic and very feminine. In 1981, they went on to record an album called Beach Party, which was recorded in a garden shed by Pat Birmingham and released on In Phase Records, then re-released by Dan Tracy of of television personalities for his label, Wham Records. Then, of course, released again later from Cherry Red Records in 1987 and 2014. And just another side note, Tracy Thorne actually recorded her first solo LP in that same shed by Pat Birmingham. So I love that. back around. 
Yeah. Yeah. And in true Marine Girls fashion, the songs on Beach Party dealt with the age-old problems of difficult boyfriends, love, loneliness, and of course, all the symbols of the sea and its mysteries. Let's listen to a bit of Marine Girls from Beach Party. That's adorable. How charming. Marine Girls discusses the pressures of girlhood and using those gentle words, try so hard, try to be what every girl should be before then listing those expectations as not too smart and no opinions, bright and pretty, sweet and willing. I love that. That's so good. So smart. Man, I like how catchy and, and light it is. I guess when I think about post-punk, it makes sense, sure. But when I think about post-punk, I always think more, I don't know, the music just feels more introspective, you know? Yeah, There's deep like and a, moody. It's like approaching brooding, right? It's like yeah. we're getting into that new wave territory. But this is leaning really heavy into just the the catchy simplicity of it. You know, very feminine, not too and, overcomplicated, yeah. very, very girly. Girly, yeah. No, it's great. Tracy Thorne has said in an interview for the Quietus, uh, which I don't know. I, I always say the Quietus, but it's spelled like quiet us. I, I say Quietus. I'm not sure if that's exactly how you pronounce that music org, but they have great stuff. If you guys don't know about it, check it out. And I'll link this particular interview in our store website because it's a really great interview with Tracy Thorne that everyone should check out. She says, we used to get up on stage in front of mostly male crowds who'd come to see a rock gig and we'd quietly but defiantly play our heartfelt songs about boys we loved or boys we despised, mixing in (laughs) strange and ever so slightly random references to the sea. (laughs) Now that's punk. That's pretty punk. Right? Yes, definitely. The band's simplistic approach to structuring songs, often centering on repetitive riffs and sometimes spoken vocals, works really well. And in a lot of ways, like you just said, Marine Girls were considerably more punk than some of the aggressively charged bands that came before them. And they just disregarded these conventions and were unafraid to sound a little unpolished. And they were, they were, like I said, authentic and true to themselves. But yeah, they created an incredibly distinctive singular sound that wasn't flashy or, you know, excessive. And it was unapologetically melodramatic, you know, such as mm-hmm. a teenager would be. Right. Gina from Marine Girls has said, punk was really important to me and Tracy. We bonded over that music. We would never have even formed the band without that DIY rough trade ethic. It was so encouraging. I think between us, we bought nearly all of the early rough trade singles. We liked the Raincoats, Delta 5, Swell Maps, Kleenex, Lilliput, and also the Modettes. All those post-punk bands. We love the old punk bands like Buzzcocks, X-Ray Specs, and early Sex Pistols in The Clash. But that music seemed like a long time before, even though it was only a couple years previous. We didn't think about our music being vulnerable. We thought that it was as strong as the music we loved, but in a different form. Quiet can be strong too. Our music was innocent because I suppose we were. I love that. I just got chills rereading it. Yeah. It makes me think, I think about how spoiled our ears are becoming with this digitized perfection that we hear, that people start to think that's what voices, that's what music and instruments sound like. And I'm so excited. I mean, it's going to, it's going to whip back around soon. 
And I just can't wait until we rediscover an appreciation for this level of sincerity yeah. in music and just let voices sound like human voices and imperfect and you know what I mean? And just kind of focus Definitely. on the, the the feeling and the energy of the music. Yeah. I Because I watched a video recently about a video exposing the use of autotune, like in TikTok, these sort of set up people singing in kitchens and things. And I've, it's I've completely- I've seen that video. I've seen that you? video. Yes. Oh, <laughs> oh, it just, it spoke so much of, you know, what I'm so irritated with these days. But yeah, I just, I can't wait till we get away from that. It's so ridiculous. And this is, this is a perfect example of just how, of how powerful something so simple and so stripped down and just human can be so much more powerful emotionally when you listen to it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, gosh, even just a recent example, I mean, so recent, we just had the Super Bowl and Alicia Keys was singing. Have you, have you seen this or heard this yet? Where her voice cracked kind of Pretty bad. That's kind of her thing, though. Isn't that just like, <laughs> that's her but, sound? No, I mean, like it was a, it was definitely not intentional. Like it, her voice just did like a little. It was a mess up. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I keep seeing videos on TikTok of people saying like, "This was so real." Like I was so glad to hear her have this imperfection because you know everything else is always like lip syncing and fake and just like this robots. just showed. Yeah. Me, yeah, she was she was really singing, and I appreciated that. Yeah. But then I guess supposedly on the, there's like a, I don't know if it's ESPN or NFL, whatever NFL, some official YouTube video that they've already fixed it somehow digitally. Oh, yeah. yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. It sounds totally different now. Yeah. That's it's annoying. I mean, yeah, maybe I she was embarrassed by it too. I'm not sure, but I love that people who like are the ones that care, I would say about the music are saying, you know, I liked that it had a real element to it. I'm glad she wasn't right. lip syncing. It right. made me glad that they tried to actually have the the musicians performing live at this huge mm-hmm. event, which is really cool. Yeah, I agree. So anyway, oh yeah. And also Gina was saying, and the majority of the bands that they liked were female bands or had female singers. She said, me and Tracy liked Pauline Murray from Penetration a lot. And of course, Polystyrene of X Respects. The raincoats were so important and I think they made us think we could be a girl band and put out our own music and fanzine. I love that they were, you know, really leaning into their peers and seeing what other women in the punk scene and DIY scene were doing and were inspired to just do their own thing and just be themselves. Hell yeah. In this respect, Marine Girls were a feminist band. They were defying musical expectations and allowing their femininity to become part of their sound. Tracy explains that many fans saw themselves reflected and represented in our refusal to adhere to either mainstream pop or underground rock and roll rules. We conducted ourselves as though none of those rules existed or as if they simply didn't apply to us. That album, Beach Party, reached number 29 in the UK indie charts in March 1982. Gina unceremoniously departed the band soon after the release of Beach Party, after which the trio reconfigured and recorded the album Lazy Ways and landed on the cover of Melody Maker. And this is Gina's story on how and why she quit. She said, Alice had a friend that used to come to rehearsals and wanted to be in the band. I thought I was going to be pushed out to make room for her. Also, I had trouble actually physically getting to some rehearsals because I lived in a different town. Later, I found out that none of others realized this and really had no thought of replacing me. So simple lack of communication. How silly, she says. That is silly. 
What a bummer. She sort of ousted herself on these like assumptions that they were going to push her out. Yeah, that's very teeny, isn't it? It is very teeny. Yeah, very teenage girly. <laughs> yeah. Marine Girls then went on to record two Peel sessions. Their first from 1982 contains five songs, Don't Come Back, Love to Know, He Got the Girl, Fever, and A Place in the Sun. Let's listen to a clip of Don't Come Back from their 1982 Peel sessions. Don't come here, try talking to me Why don't you hang yourself from the nearest tree I don't want to hear what you have to say Here's your coat and the door is that way I love that. Holy crap. Hang yourself on the nearest tree. Here's the door. Take your coat. Peace. Don't let don't him hit you on the way Don't be deceived by this sweet little guitar, you know, strumming. Because that first line is savage. Good Lord. <laughs> I know, right? She doesn't want to hear any more of his words. All right. Can I just say too, the yeah. cover of this Melody Maker magazine is so cute with Jane climbing out of the pool. Oh yeah, very cute. Love that. <laughs> Isn't that adorable? That's good. Their second Peel session from 1983 contains four songs, Lazy Ways, That Day, Seascape, and a cover version of Love You More by the Buzzcocks. Lazy Ways is the second album of Marine Girls, and it was released by Cherry Red Records in 1983. The song Lazy Ways also appears on Cherry Red showcase compilation Pillows and Prayers, while A Place in the Sun appears on Pillows and Prayers 2, and the album Lazy Ways and Beach Party were reissued together on one CD with bonus tracks by Cherry Red in 1988. But let's listen to the title track of Lazy Ways, Lazy Ways. I like these these ladies a lot. Yeah, me that's, too. That's my vibe. Also, the bass sounds really good. Yeah, it's got like this glomp. Look, it too sounds like it's underwater. Yeah. <laughs> like these big glugs. Uh, it is gluggy. I really like it though. It's cool. So like I said, Lazy Ways came out in 1983. From 1982 though, Tracy Thorne started concentrating on her studies and growing personal and professional relationships with fellow whole student Ben Watt, who contributed mm-hmm. the photograph for the cover of Lazy Ways. Ben Watt and Tracy Thorne re-recorded the Cole Porter song Night and Day under the name of Everything But The Girl. We oh, have to yeah. listen to a little bit of Night and Day because it's one of my favorite Everything but the girl releases. Night and day, you are the one. Only you beneath the moon and under the sun. So that's amazing. I love that. Yeah. I love Tracy Thorne's voice. I know how perfect. So good. The start of everything but the girl in the midst of Marine Girls history. Yeah. Tracy Thorne had also released that solo album that we mentioned before that Pat Birmingham recorded in a shed in 1982. It's called A Distant Shore, which was well-received by the critics and public. But pursuing this sort of parallel of Marine Girls and everything but the girl with Ben Watt first seemed comfortable and okay, but with increasing popularity and media attention of everything but the girl, Tracy split with the Fox sisters in 1983 after the release of the successful Lazy Ways album. But... 
the Fox sisters didn't stop. They continued their seaside oceanic fixation in 1984, formed the band Grab Grab the Haddock, which produced two EPs on Cherry Red before they folded in 1986. So let's listen to a little bit of that big word but from Grab Grab the Haddock's EP called Four More Songs. Said to me that your destiny was free. Which you love so well, but that was there. This is now and so now you're... Alright, so we're winding down here. Even though they were only active between 1980 and 1983, Marine Girls were able to release two great albums at the time and remain incredibly underrated from the British indie pop movement, despite exerting so much influence over artists to come. And a distant friend of theirs, Calvin Johnson, carried the Marine Girls legacy to Portland, Oregon. First, he formed a band almost entirely based off of their image called Beat Happening. Actually, let's listen to a clip of Indian Summer by Beat Happening. Welcome back for Indian Summer. We'll come back for Indian Summer. We'll come back. So that Indian Summer song came out in 1988, only five years after Lazy Days came out and was inspired completely by Marine Girl. Then, like I said, Calvin Johnson took this legacy Portland, Oregon, first formed that band, Beat Happening, and then by being part of the label Sub Pop, which ultimately signed Nirvana, he played the album Beach Party to Kurt and Courtney, along with things like the Raincoats and Kleenex. And Kurt loved Beach Party. When Kurt Cobain's journals were published in 2002, in his own handwriting, a Marine Girl showed up in many of his lists of favorite bands. There, The Marine Girls are on page 128, page 241, and on page 77 is a list of his favorite songs, Honey and In Love Are There, also for Marine Girls. Most incredibly, on page 271, Beach Party is listed as one of Kurt Cobain's top 50 albums, along with The Sex Pistols, The Clash, and Public Enemy. Nice. I know, that's huge, right? That's that's pretty crazy. I'm actually going to close this out with some words from Tracy because it just doesn't get any better when it's someone from the band reflecting on their legacy and influence themselves. So here we go. Tracy says, this is clearly going to be a recurring theme of my life and is a course of wonderful thing. Makes me very proud, but it does just beg the question, what on earth is it or was it about Marine Girls that means we cast this long and somewhat unlikely shadow? We only ever really performed a handful of proper gigs and released two albums, which went on to sell something in the region of 50,000 copies each. So we might've expected to be forgotten fairly quickly, but in fact, the opposite has happened. And And in that mysterious late night obsessive world of the internet, we have become somewhat seminal post-punk DIY band, more revered now than we ever were at the time. Those who loved us, you see, loved us deeply and enduringly. And those who understood the singular nature of the music we made saw themselves reflected and represented in our refusal to adhere to either mainstream pop or underground rock and roll rules, which I had highlighted previously. We created an almost magical sense of otherworldliness, hand-built on our own little universe. And when audiences were allowed a glimpse of it, often they were entranced. In all honesty, Marine Girls were probably one of those bands who could only ever have lasted for a couple albums. Our split was perhaps the most rock and roll thing we ever did in that it took place in a dressing room after a fraught gig at which we were heckled and was not without acrimony. 
We were very young, so the aftermath was poorly handled by all of us, and it was years before we ever talked to each other about it and made our peace with the mess we'd made. Still, all that said, there is kind of a perfection in us having split up just when we did, leaving a legacy of a more or less entirely uncompromised version of indie pop. The end. Wow, that's that's so interesting. Right? Mm. And now we have everything but the girl who I love. She's right though. You know, they they were yeah. just around. They were around for a short time and it was just like this perfect snapshot of the time and of, you know, being that age, yeah. you know, and just dip back out. Yeah. Make your mark and jump back out. Plus Tracy Thorne's arc career arc in music is a really interesting one being from like this post-punk world all the way to this really smart electronic music is a cool arc it is a cool arc yeah I, I love her musical journey me too and I think I think too like being in the spotlight for such not even the spotlight really but you know making music for that short period of time you don't have to think about changing trends and and you know them growing up and becoming adults and having to like incorporate all this new kind of life experience so it allows that music to just become more distilled with time you know yeah definitely it's a good point and you can hear the maturity of her music over time listening all the way from i'm so glad she started singing (laughs) oh yeah me too i love her voice it's so unique and beautiful i mean those massive attack songs the um all the way to like hatfield 1980 kind of a trip-hop vibe in the early 2000s or was that late 90s around there i guess but yeah Mm. good times Marine Girls, never forget. Very sweet. Who do you have for us to chat about? Well, I'm not too far back from the Marine Girls in time. We're going to go to the 70s and talk about a very influential trio of spectacular singers, beautiful young ladies called the Jones Girls. So the Jones Girls are three sisters, Shirley, Brenda, and Valerie, born and raised in Detroit. Their mother is gospel singer, Mary Fraser Jones, known as the Songbird of Detroit. So they'd been singing together from an early age, coached by their mom who noticed their natural gift for harmonizing. So she really trained them, even brought them on as her backup singers, as she herself was an artist on RCA Records back in the 50s. One of the first gospel artists on RCA in fact. And she signed the same day as Little Richard, which I thought was fun. So the Jones girls were first signed to GM Records in 68. And then, you know, they started recording for a smattering of smaller labels. I think they did a Fortune record label in Detroit. Then they moved to Hot Wax Invictus, which is a company formed by legendary Motown producers, Lamont Dozier, Eddie Holland, and Brian Holland. Here's one of the singles that they recorded during that time in 1972 called Come Back. Then they later moved to Curtis Mayfield's Custom Records. So now the three sisters, they're doing their own thing. They've gone secular. The word has gotten out on their amazing harmonies. And they just started working with some pretty major artists, such as Lou Rawls, Aretha Franklin, Peebo Bryson, Teddy Pendergrass. In 1976, they began touring as backup singers for Diana Ross. And Diana Ross even graciously offered them the spotlight for like a little interlude during her show. So while they were on tour with Diana Ross, that's when they really hit it big. They joined the Philadelphia International Records in 1979 with writing and production legends Kenneth Gamble and Leon A. Huff, known as the architects of Philly Soul Sound. So the backstory is that Diana Ross introduced the Jones girls to Kenneth Gamble after one of her shows, and Patti LaBelle was also in attendance that night. 
And Diana Ross told Gamble that the Jones girls were just too good to be backup singers forever. And Gamble was very impressed with them, signed them right away. And this is kind of where they blew up. Now, during this whole time, the timeline is a, a little bit murky, but they're still going on tour, singing backups for huge artists like uh, the Four Tops, Little Richard, The Impressions, B.B. King. They performed on Tower of Power's 1979 album, Back on the Streets. So that same year, 1979, the Jones Girls released their self-titled debut album with Philadelphia International Records. And here they landed their first and biggest hit with You Gonna Make Me Love Somebody Else. Well, this song has been like sampled and covered. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've come across this yeah. before in all kinds of ways. I mean, the song is just so darn groovy. That bass, yeah. the beat, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's been sampled a lot, wrapped over a lot. The one that jumps to mind first for me is that Jay-Z song with Black Street that came out in 1997 called The City Is Mine. Yeah. Yep, that bass line. Do you remember that song? No, I don't know that song. 97. God, I can't believe that was that long ago. It's <laughs> <That is> so crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. <laughs> anyway, so You Gonna Make Me Love Somebody Else went gold. It hit Billboard's Soul Singles chart, the disco chart, and reached number 38 on the Billboard Hot 100. And this was their only major chart entry, which seems insane once we hear all of the other big hits they had. Uh, the album also appeared on Billboard's pop albums and top soul albums charts. So quite a major success for these ladies. Another classic B-side from that album is Who Can I Run To? Just love that. That's the jam. Beautiful, yeah. soulful ballad, which was famously covered by the 90s R&B group Escape. And that version, Escape's version, became a number one R&B hit, a top 10 pop hit in 1995, and was definitely my introduction to this song. It's a pretty faithful bar by bar remake too. So I'll let you check that cover out on your own. But the Escape is, is really cool. And their harmonies and their yeah. skills totally match the Jones Girls version really well. So yeah, that's a classic. In 1980, the Jones Girls released their sophomore album, At Peace With Woman. And they had another big hit on their hands with the track, I Just Love The Man. But there's one thing that you just don't seem to understand. I just love the man. And I don't care what you say. That reminds me of In Vogue. Yeah. What's the name of the song? That ballad that they had such a huge don't hit with. Don't Let Go. Giving him something don't he can feel. Go. When they're in oh. the red, the red dresses. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That one too. I was thinking that's don't a remake, go. actually. Yeah. But yeah, the whole the whole vibe for sure. Yeah. And also to that point, I can't get over their live performances. You would really enjoy seeing them do this. Like look them up on YouTube. Aside from being spectacular singers, they are so gorgeous. Just full on seventies, maximum head to toe glam playing. Yeah. They're such great performers, complete naturals on stage. This song in particular is fun because there's like a lot of talking. It's one sister expressing concern for another because she seems so distraught and just not herself with this guy. And, you know, you need to get away from him. And then the hook comes in and the other sister's like, I know girl, but damn it, I just love this band. You know, it is so <laughs> cute to see them act the whole thing out on stage. It's, it's great. So also featured on this album is a remake of the stylistic song, Children of the Night. Look 
is mesmerizing. And I love the original too. That stylistic song, Children of the Night, is, is one of my favorites yeah. as well. So I love this cover. In 1981, they released their third album, Get As Much Love As You Can. And this album delivered a major, major hit. Certainly the song of theirs with the greatest legacy. And that is Nights Over Egypt. That intro groove to Nights Over Egypt is just timeless. That little snake charmer synth line at the start and then those chords and then that iconic bass line. It's just so smooth and mystical and the vibe. It was nominated for a Grammy. I miss that sound. It's it's like um, pre-Quiet Storm, post-disco. It's like a blend of soul and funk, but slower and sexy. Sexier? I don't know. I yeah, missed that. This is what they nailed it. They polished that right up in Philly. So this is good. that Philly soul quiet storm sound for sure. Yeah. But before the cheesy quiet storm stuff. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. Another great thing about this track too, I think it's a good example. I mean, all of their songs are good examples of this, but like their greatest legacy is the quality of their harmony, their top tier harmonies. And I think you can really hear it in this song, especially because they're singing like in unison during the the verses. They're singing in unison. And it's just like it's so seamless and just unified. It's like one voice and they're just in sync with each other when they break into harmonies. It's so clean. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's definitely a gift. That's something that their mom clocked early, early on. Yeah. Just just some of the greatest harmonies I think I've, I've ever heard. Yeah. It does sound like it's, you know, how modern artists these days are, lay- they layer so many of their vocals to get this rich sound, but it seems like they almost get it out of the box because of their... Yeah blood harmonies there. They just have it locked in. Yeah, it's locked in. Exactly. That's the word I'm looking for. That's perfect. Yeah. So again, this song was nominated for Grammy. It has been sampled and covered numerous times, most famously, I believe, by the group Incognito in 1999. So Incognito, of course, is the British acid jazz band. And so they gave the song a dancier club vibe, which ended up being a pretty big hit for them as well. Then the Jones Girls released an album with RCA Records in 1983 called On Target, which didn't make as big a splash as the previous albums. It was it was a pretty different sound for them. Here's the title track from that album, On Target. Yeah, so you can hear that they're kind of like moving into more of that 80s pop lane. Yeah. It's a cute song. Yeah, it's 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 different though. And here's what I think happened. So this album, it didn't do great. It peaked at 43 on the Billboard chart. And then the next year in 1984, their previous label, Philadelphia International, released an album of the Jones Girls' unreleased tracks called Keep It Coming. So, or Keep It Coming, excuse me. So here's that title track. So that's, yeah, that's still a little 80s pop action, I guess. But as a whole, the album was still kind of 
sticking to more of that Philly sound that they had established. And I think having those two records out at around the same time, maybe threw the audience off just a little bit. And that Keep It Coming album actually sold better than the RCA on Target album. Um, And maybe that's why, maybe because it just felt more familiar to that Philly soul sound that people had gotten used to. So after that, the Jones girls disbanded and life just moved on. Brenda got married, youngest sister Valerie went to college and Shirley married Harlem Globetrotters player Harold Hubbard. Kenneth Gamble reached out to eldest sister Shirley to invite her back to Philadelphia International as a solo artist. And Shirley returned, recorded and released an album called Always in the Mood in 1986. And she scored a number one R&B hit with her single, Do You Get Enough Love? So fun fact, that song was originally intended for the OJs. The Jones girls occasionally reunited for overseas tours, but tragically in 2001, Valerie Jones passed away at 45 years old. And in 2017, Brenda Jones died at 62 years old in an auto accident. But Shirley is still with us, entertaining, performing, doing interviews, and she is a delight to watch. Uh, She still performs as the Jones girls alongside her two nieces and a nephew on backing vocals, which I think is really sweet. It's a family affair. Yeah. Keep it in the family. Love that. Yeah. So the Jones girls are still doing it, but check them out. Just, you know, they deserve their flowers. They've been been killing it like since they were children, you know, just this unmistakable talent and they've toured and sung with the greats and they've dropped some major, major hits that are still inspiring artists to this day and being used in samples and covers. Yeah, they've definitely made their mark on music and the culture for sure. Yeah, I definitely recognize the cover of their debut album, The Jones Girls. Mm -hmm. I love that sound. Yeah, and it looks like Brenda actually lived in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. At one point? Yeah, I had read that one of the sisters lived in Atlanta, yeah. Oh, that's good. I love also how they started as a family with their mom, kind of teaching them the ways and then even having them as her backup singer. And and then... They were bred for stardom. All the way fast forward. For sure. Yeah. That's great. Cool. Rockin'. Yeah. We found commonalities last time, right? We always find commonalities. I feel like we do. Yeah. Aren't they? They're both trios. (laughs) That's low-hanging fruit. Well, I know that initially the Marine Girls weren't a trio. Yeah. But they became a trio, right? True. I'll take it. But I will say, it does seem like that they worked their butts off, kind of, and left this lasting impression, even though... They aren't often spoken about. I mean, well, that's kind of why we're talking about them, right? It's because they're forgotten girl groups. So that's maybe too much of a commonality there. How about they are both these glowing bastions of just pure femininity, unapologetic feminine power. Unapologetic femininity. I'm shocked that I said that word correctly on the first try. (laughs) I'm so proud of you. (laughs) I I love talking about these girl groups because I swear I always learn so much. I know about them, but I don't know everything about them. And so, you know, I didn't realize Marine Girls had such an impact to indie pop and Jones Girls too. Their influence is clearly gone really far and I don't really know them very well. So, Well, same here. I've always loved Tracy Thorn and I didn't know so much about her musical history. And yeah. It's been cool to hear about that. And I think that's why it's important to have these conversations because we recognize these songs. We know that they're iconic. We dance to them all the time. We deserve, we, we need to fill in the blanks on the women who brought the music to us, you know? That's true. Yeah. So yeah. Good call. All right. Cool. Okay. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye.
Record Store Society is hosted by Natalie White and Tara Davies. If you'd like to contact the show, visit our website at recordstoresociety.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society.